Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Passionate about standing up for all Canadians. The Roy Green Show continues. As I was preparing to speak, I began to ask myself the same question that I now know has been troubling many of you. Why have we not been able to get together as a nation to resolve our serious energy problem? That was the voice of President Jimmy Carter and uh, in the uh, late 70s. And even, even then, or maybe particularly then, there was a lot of talk about energy problems. And then it was, there isn't enough oil. We need more oil supplies. And now, of course, it's, well, we don't want the oil because, and you know the rest of that story. As we continue to debate oil pipelines, and one in particular in this country, the Trans Mountain Pipeline Extension, which the Prime Minister is going to spend... Oh, wait a minute. He doesn't have any money. Well, he has money. But he's going to spend your money and my money on it, some $4.5 billion. Says it's not going to be a government getting into the oil business. We'll see. Uh, why did we play Jimmy Carter? Well, because Pat Cadell is with us. He's an American public opinion pollster and a political film consultant who served as chief public opinion pollster and senior advisor for the campaigns of Democratic presidential candidates George McGovern and Jimmy Carter, 72 and 76. Pat Cadell became personal advisor to President Carter from 77 to 81 and served many other presidential campaigns. He was also a strategic media consultant to Apple Computers and Coca-Cola and served as a consultant on films including Apocalypse Now, Reds, Air Force One in the line of fire and breakout. And he was a writer, producer, and consultant for the Emmy Award-winning television series, The West Wing. Um, Pat Cadell has worked as a political expert on major television networks and was a Fox News contributor. Mr. Cadell, thank you so much for making the time. I've watched you for years, and I'm a big fan of the fact that you're an honest thank guy. You. Thank you. Did you write that? I'm uh, to be. Did you write that... Uh, there's nothing like the smell of napalm first thing in the morning line? No, I wish I had. It's one of my favorites. So that was, I only uh, got uh, there for the, we were figuring out that we arrived in, Jerry Rapsi and I arrived in the Philippines. They had already shot that. They, we were working on the ending where they were blowing it up and, um, and, uh, and uh, how it was possible to market a movie about Vietnam. Uh, it took several more years before Coppola would ever be able to release it, but it, so, but it was an amazing experience being there. They had lots of interesting things, but I wish I had written that line. It's such a it's classic. Yeah, anybody who's heard that line will never forget it. Oh, yeah, exactly. Tell us about Jimmy Carter, please. There are many people who, when they hear about Jimmy Carter, they think one-term president, maybe the weakest president in our, uh, in our contemporary 
history of watching the United States. Is that a, a, a misrepresentation a of Mr. Carter? Yeah, I believe absolutely. I think he was a very difficult presidency because of timing and because of the energy crisis and then we had the hostages and others. But I think he achieved more. And, and you know, and actually the boom in energy that's going on now in America, uh, particularly as it relates to shale oil and whatever, was started under his energy program. Um, and uh, uh, and then that, that was the origin. So it's Stu Eisenstadt who worked for President Carter. Has just released a, a written a, a new book on the Carter administration, which is getting rave reviews. Many people have gone back and realized that the accomplishments were many in that administration, even in its short life. Um, and of course, the one thing he did do uh, that uh, is most remembered is his 13 days at Camp David with Sadat and Begin when he affected the peace treaty between Israel and Egypt, which lasts to this day, in which has really made war among Middle Eastern states um, unlike, you know, uh, unlikely to be able to be had with Egypt out. So um, it was, uh, you know, I think there was many, many significant accomplishments. Uh, but it was a difficult time in the hostage crisis in That's the right. economy. So, well, you know, you pay a price for those things. But uh, I think his administration was, I look back and look at it as one of the most honest. I mean, the promotion of human rights around the world, which was unbelievably resisted by certain elements in the foreign policy community, I think was a huge breakthrough for the United States, uh, just that alone, and very popular with the American people. I want to ask you about the, uh, the rising tide of nationalism globally and, uh, and borders. Uh, but first, may I ask you, what's it like to walk into the Oval Office if you're in the position of being a personal advisor to the President of the United States, which you were, and and so you're advising and you're privy to um, to things that are going on in the world. You talked about the hostage crisis in Iran. What is what's it like in that room when difficult decisions are being worked out, and the advisor speaks? Well, it's a little awesome. I mean, to go into the Oval Office ever. Uh, I've never gone in since and then or since that I haven't uh, felt the weight of the, I mean, the, uh, the, the historical awe uh, of the Oval Office and the president and decision-making. Your job is, if you're advising a president, is give me your best advice. But uh, it was always uh, with great uh, uh, awe and respect to be in that office. Uh, it was intimidating in a way. Yeah, I can I can imagine it would be. Um, yeah. What do you make of what's going on? One of the problems for uh, let me just say, sure. One of the problems for presidents, people go in there and they get intimidated and they don't go in and say what they mean what they want us, what they are meaning to say, and which doesn't help them or serve of the president very well. Now, how could you not think about who's been in that office, who's occupied that office, and who's made historical or historic decisions? in that office and now it's your turn yes and it's uh, it's awesome you know and you cannot there's no way you can avoid it you have the roosevelt room uh conference room which is right across sort of from the oval office and the cabinet all the cabinet room i mean it's just filled with historical memorabilia that tells you where you are and um and each president brings their own 
to it, and uh, you know, you walk in there, and you're sitting there at the uh, at the desk that uh, Great Britain from the Repulsa, the ship Repulsa, I think, uh, gave to um, the United States that John Kennedy had actually reinstated as a, reinstalled as a presidential desk, you know, which is a magnificent uh, thing. So, anyway, ever all of it is. Yeah. Uh, you just you cannot help but think of the decisions and other things that have been decided there. Uh, I need to take a quick break. Can you stay with us, uh, take a break, and then come back and talk about some of the decisions that are being made now and some of the challenges that uh, that are being faced by the current president? Sure. We'll come back with Pat Cadell on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. He's a political strategist, consultant, and former Fox News contributor. Stay with us. He's always up for a good debate. This is the Roy Green Show. All right. Listen back to anything that we air at RoyGreenShow.com in the podcast. You can read my uh, blog postings, and you can share your thoughts on what I write. It's RoyGreenShow.com. Pat Cadell is my guest. He uh, advised over 150 political campaigns including those of uh, Gary Hart, Walter Mondale, Jerry Brown, Joe Biden, Edward Kennedy, Edmund Muskie, and Mario Cuomo. There's a lot of names that I remember from over the years. Um, Mr. Goodell, when you look at Donald Trump in the chair of the president, and now the, the one of the big fights is, are we in a global world or a globalist's world, or are we in a world where nationalism and borders matter more? See, in Europe, um, it seems to be more and more that the nationalists are, or the populists, if you will, are gaining significant traction, whereas many of the politicians who are in elected office seem to wish to go for the global point of view. Where's this fight going? Yes. Where's this fight going? Well, this is a crisis politically around the world, certainly in the United States and, uh, uh, and, and in Europe right now between those people who in the elite wish to be more globalist even at the expense of the effect on their country and the rising sense of wait a minute you know we are not the we the people middle class others are not being taken care of but their concerns aren't met and they're treated as though they are they are in, irrelevant look i think about europe and we've seen this now in italy Slovenia, it's Hungary, everything, and Italy, it, Italy again, is really significant, um, and we saw it with Brexit, which is um, a resistance to the e- e- EU political um, union, which is, I've never understood, I thought the EU common market worked pretty well, but when they extended it to a political union, uh, which was essentially run by faceless bureaucrats in Brussels, ordering people about um, and doing, I suppose, whatever the Germans tell them to do. Um, the uh, impact, people have gotten to really resent that, and that has been particularly heightened by the immigration, the refugee flow, uh, the unabated refugee flow into Europe and all of the difficulties and, and, um, and uh, problems that has caused even if the media is ordered not to cover it, 
or if you do cover it, as we saw in Britain, you get to go to jail mm-hmm. uh, if you violate the. Uh, I mean, it's unbelievable what is happening in the world um, and the assault on these countries, essentially of an invasion. This is to not to put too much on it, but it reflects to me as a um, is the what was stopped by um, you know the French and and by uh, various battles during the you know Middle Ages and later um, the the encroachment of um, of uh, Muslim Muslim state and uh, Turkey and so forth into the Ottoman Empire uh, into Europe is being done by just sitting down and surrendering. I mean, just I mean, I, I don't believe you can avoid you can wipe out the nationalism of countries, particularly with histories as rich and long as they are in Europe. And uh, and uh, so we're seeing this counter movement everywhere, and it is it is truly a division between the elites who take care of themselves, make sure they do well, and are not affected by the policies that they institute and force on ordinary people in countries who feel they have become powerless, and they are and they are rising back. Now, when you we look at Europe, we see countries in Eastern Europe, former states within the USSR, they're the ones who seem to be closing their borders or at least moving in that direction with more uh, determination than we might be seeing from other countries in uh, in the European Union. Is that a fair assessment? Yes, yes, absolutely. The, the resistance in Eastern Europe because their freedom as countries is only recent seems to be stronger than it is in uh, other parts of the uh, EU. But look, we saw elements of this happening in Spain, some of it in France. We have really seen it in the rise in Germany uh, in, in the, uh, because of Merkel's policies, um, uh, Angela Merkel's policies and, you know, uh, and her party, and she's going to leave now, I guess. Um, the, um, but they are because they're, they're relatively new countries and very... Um, very passionate about holding on to their independence mm-hmm. and nationalism, and uh, and you know Slovenia, I think was shipping was you know had almost as many people who are refugees coming in a year as they had people in the country. That has got to be disruptive, and they really reacted to it. How do you see this ending? Hungary. How, how do you see this ending? Uh, uh, not well. Not well. Uh, I think that the populist tide we're seeing is going to continue until there. I think the, it will end when um, the political, when the EU as a political union uh, dissolves, which I think may well be inevitable. Yeah. I do not understand why it came about in the first place, uh, other than it was a dream of the Europeans, uh, Europeanists uh, there. And um, But, you know, that all you have to do is read the EU Constitution which I dare anyone to try to read. It's like 500 pages. I mean, the American Constitution is like 15 pages. Yeah. You know, and not realize what you have here is a bureaucracy, faceless, and, and, and one that cannot be influenced, yeah. dictating every aspect of life. And look, for the Eastern Europeans, they've been through that. They're not going to do that. Well, and they've I been through it. A lot of others. They've been through it with the, when they were part of the USSR. They lived under a right, massive bureaucracy. Right. Right. And, when you, when you, uh, I, that's why, uh, and the others, I think, as I said, 
I think we're seeing it even in the West. Yeah, we have about two minutes left. When you talk about elites, I think about Bill Clinton, and I watch Clinton um, on on TV with this book tour of his, and the man seems totally out of touch with reality. In the in the yeah. era of the Me Too movement, he is still babbling on about Monica Lewinsky as though he did nothing wrong. What's what's going on with him? Uh, he is so out of touch. He needs to go away. I think Democrats feel strongly. Uh, I think he and Hillary, would, they would just all wishing them to go away because it's always been about them. And his this tour of his, uh, on his book tour, is as bad as what Hillary did on hers prior to her presidential campaign. He is just digging himself deeper and deeper, and then he gets another piece of advice, and, oh, I'm apologizing. You know, that is... It's time to put that aside. And, um, you know, he's been saying things, other things that uh, very disrupt people. Yeah. But, you know, the example of because they are under investigation and, they, and, they, and, they, and, and what was going on with the Clinton Foundation and his money. And, look, the Clintons corrupted American politics in a way that the other elites joined in that has been to the disservice into the anger of the you know of the American people. There's just no doubt about it. Corruption is a big issue, even if no one in Washington will admit it. And Bill Clinton is just kind of reminiscent, just kind of re you know reignites that that feeling. I, uh, I in the 30 seconds we have left, and it deserves more time. I'm sure you're personally familiar with Charles Krauthammer. I had the opportunity to yeah, interview uh, him, and we're playing back parts of the interview over the weekend. What are your what are your thoughts about Mr. Krauthammer? Oh, I, I, I am such a fan of Charles's, and, and I was honored to be a colleague of his at Fox, and I am so distressed when I saw the letter, and I think it was so el- understated and eloquent, the battle he's faced. He was one of the smartest, most interesting minds of my time, and he actually started out working for Walter Mondale when I when, during the Carter Mondale. Oh, really? So, yeah. Um, yeah, it's... Uh, uh, but he is—he uh, uh, will be sorely missed, and it's a terrible per- tragedy for all of us. It is. It's Pat, a great loss. Yeah, Pat, I thank you so much for taking the time to talk to okay, us today. Okay, my my pleasure, Roy. All okay. the very best. I am. Okay, thank you. Bye, bye, Pat Cadell, uh, personal advisor to uh, Jimmy Carter, and uh, active in more than 150 campaigns, many of them uh, presidential campaigns for Democrats. In the U.S., he wishes that Hillary and Bill would just go away. He's not alone in that wish. When we come back, it's Catherine, Linda, and Michelle, the beauties.